The Mag Life Podcast, episode number 174. I'm Daniel Shaw, and I'm here with Varg Freeborn. How are you, Varg? Pretty good. We're going to jump right in to a topic in usual Mag Life fashion. You just got back from uh, running some Force on Force class up in Alliance, Ohio. Tell us a little bit about that, like what you did there and what you do in those Force on Force classes. Yeah, so I was just up at the Alliance Police Training Facility, which is probably one of the premier training facilities in the whole eastern part of the United States. And they have this uh, tremendous shoot house and, and, you know, a rather large facility all the way around. So I was running a team-based CQB concealed carry force-on-force class. And what it was was scenarios and situations that are likely to be encountered by concealed carry citizens and lone patrol officers. So it's geared towards that type of thing. But it is CQB in the sense that you will be fighting in closed spaces and around obstacles where you have to understand, you know, the rules and principles of fighting in those types of limitations. So it was a very good class. This particular class was emphasized for teamwork. So I had some husbands and wives that show up, you know, they carry guns together. They're obviously out together in public a lot. And I had some friends show up who hang out together all the time and they both carry guns and also some cops, you know, patrol cops, things like that, that would be in a situation by themselves or with one other officer maybe showing up to back them up. And there's considerations to take into when you have a situation and guns come out and there's two of you, this can either complicate matters and create the potential for tragedy exponentially, or it can make things tremendously easier for you. But if you haven't trained it and you haven't worked on the procedures and you haven't worked on teamwork and you just think you're going to do the right thing or you think you're going to know what to do or you think your partner's going to know what to do, you're very, very mistaken. And you find this out in classes like that where you run through scenarios, you get put in situations that are, you know, realistically what could happen, you know, in a restaurant or a coffee shop or on the street walking to your car. And you find out that things break down really quickly. You know, your partner doesn't move as fast as you thought they would or decisions aren't made the way that you assume that they would be made. And everything breaks down very quickly. So it's a very beneficial class. And that's kind of the point of it there. The team-based part is really emphasizing, you know, the importance of learning some kind of procedures and some kind of communication and having some kind of plan with the skills so that things don't go tragic. They go easier. Yeah. I think there's a lot of misconceptions about what goes on in a force-on-force class and who's ready for a force-on-force class and who's not. I find myself telling students at the end of my classes in debrief, sometimes during classes, during different discussions that we have, that their next step in their training, the next thing that they should be doing is a shoot house class. Especially, you know, my handgun class and my regular carbine two-day class, not my patrol rifle problem solver class, but I mean that one as well. But hopefully they've already done a shoot house by the time they come to that patrol rifle problem solver class. It's a great class. Both of them are. They're great classes to prepare someone for a shoot house, but I'm not saying that they need to have a class like that to be prepared for a shoot house class because you're going to get so much information in a shoot house class that you didn't expect. Little things, small details that you never expected even existed are going to pop up almost every moment like that happens in that class. You're going to get it constantly. And the reason I say it's a good preparatory class is there's a lot of things that you could go into a force-on-force class where you have very little gun handling skills, very little understanding of, of safety, foregrounds and backgrounds, angles, uh, ready positions and carries, and that kind of thing, where that's going to end up soaking up a lot of your mental bandwidth in that class if you don't have a decent foundation in that. But that doesn't mean you're not going to get anything 
out of that class. You're still going to get tons out of that class, and you're going to get that at the same time, which is why I, I say that uh, you know my handgun class and carbon class are good preparatory classes to a shoot house class because you can go in there and just really focus on all those things that you had no idea that you were missing. And I think you the term you just used a minute ago was all the decisions you have to make that include your skills. And I, I think you meant the skills that you came with that you already thought were good or that you needed. And now you're applying them in a totally different situation in one moment. And then in the next room, you're applying them in a totally different way. You take that and, and see where that comes out with your thought process on the who needs to take a shoot house class and when. Yeah, so I want to differentiate because we switch terminology. Yeah, I used the word shoot house. That, that was wrong, yeah, uh, so, which, which would not be accurate for your class for what you're saying. Yeah, it happens in the shoot house, but I would not call it a traditional shoot house class. Although I do agree that average people should take shoot house classes. Yep. I think force on force should come even sooner than traditional shoot house CQB class. Most shootout CQB classes are taught in very military or law enforcement style, which is systematic clearing of rooms and spaces for the purpose of clearing the house or obtaining something or someone that's in the house. So maybe part of what happens in a force on force class, I teach a home defense block at night in low light, which is all done with the lights off and just with the use of flashlights and, and handguns. And it gives people a chance to set up in a mock bedroom and deal with a hallway that leads into another room and start to understand how to set up an area of denial, how to fight from the high ground, how to choose where the fight's going to happen rather than getting sucked into an unknown fight. And they start to see the success rate go up higher. And those are very much principles of CQB traditional shoot house classes, right? Like the types of things that, you know, angles of fire, angles of exposure, the procedures you would use for a hallway, room, things like that. Those transpose over into a home defense situation for sure. You would also have the same thing if you're in an office building and something goes wrong. And I know that I've been in some office buildings that are like mazes. You get inside and you're like, man, how do I even get out of here anymore? And so that's a situation where you would need to employ those skills also. However, I think when we're talking about force on force, I would like to see people attend force on force as soon as they can in their training career. And the reason I say that, because I know that there's been some feeling in this industry for a long time that force on force is like something you do later when you get your skills together and you think you're ready. And, you know, yeah, people ideally, think of, think, people think of it as like, it's a test. Okay. Now I'm ready to be tested in force on force. And I, you know, I agree. That's not the way to look at this. Yeah. I mean, it can be a test, but it's not just a test. It's, it's an extreme extreme learning situation. And I and I emphasize the word extreme because you're going to learn what's important and what's not important. You're going to learn what gear wor really works in a situation and what doesn't. You know, I've had people, you know, in every class switch the way they carry their gun or borrow a holster from someone else because this holster they've been carrying for some people up to many years. Now that they've tested it, they find out this doesn't work at all. You know, and I, I need to move this and I can't get to it. You know, when stress happened and it's changed everything, and now this is useless to me. It was useless to you the whole time. You just didn't know it, right? And so now you got lucky and you found out under a mock situation instead of a real situation. So force on force does test you. It tests your gear, it tests your skills. Did you hit the target at all? You know, when you were in stress, you know, who did you shoot? Uh, were you able to ID properly? All of those things come into play in a testing context. However, the learning part of force on force is the most important thing. And I, me personally, I encourage new shooters to come to my force on force class. That class I do in Alliance is absolutely worth traveling to. I've had people travel all the way from Washington State to come to that class. And there's a context that happens inside of that class that mirrors the outside world in a way that really gives you a realistic perspective of 
what is important. And I mean, not just what gear and how to carry and what kind of gun, but like how do you use your sights under stress? How do you manage ammo and understand how important ammo is in a gunfight? And as it runs out, that's all you have. And if you think you're going to reload, sometimes that's not possible. When you're in the middle of the mix and there's stress and you dump your whole mag and the threat's still standing in front of you and still has ammo in his gun, I don't care how fast you reload, that's not a good situation to be reloading your gun in. So ammo management, sight usage, movement, teamwork, dealing with shapes and obstacles and understanding you know, where to put your body to be in the best position possible. Those things become what's really important in that fight situation and most people have no idea how to do. And so when they start to get into those situations and they start to learn that, then they can go forward from there. They can do a better job picking the classes that they need to go to for square range skills and the instructors and the companies that are going to emphasize the things that they found out are really important in gunfights and high stress situations and be able to avoid a lot of the flashy nonsense stuff that maybe is fun to do. But it's not, it's going to be like 5 or 10% of a fight when they could spend their money on the things that is probably in that 80 percentile importance of the fight. Give me some examples of some of those things that people that you've seen that often think that should be a top priority for them to be good at for a fight, but then that gets changed in that force on force class. A lot. So one of the big things I think is the fast draw. There's nothing wrong with a fast draw in the gun training world. The guys who run their mouth a lot and shoot the fastest tend to be pretty well paid and pretty popular. But when you get into a situation, especially when the gun is already out or the knife is already out, you know, your partner's held at gunpoint or something like that, that's very likely. These things happen. And, and a lot of my scenarios in my class are based off of real events that I've studied on surveillance video and then recreate those in a class context. So it's not like you're just dreaming this stuff up out of your basement. These are real scenarios plucked out of the world of surveillance footage and put into a training context where that fast draw just is not an option. And I intentionally pick those to, you know, weed out that fast draw response because it forces people to have an emphasis on the other skills and the other decision-making processes that they need in a fight situation. So that's one of the things I think is, you know, when they find out that it doesn't matter how fast your draw is, it could be sub one second or it could be sub a half a second and it, it could be an instantaneous, you know, Star Trek type of thing where it just materializes in your hand from your very thoughts and it, could, it wouldn't be fast enough. There's no draw fast enough to deal with a gun that's pointed at you. And so then we have to learn my negotiation skills, my de-escalation skills, my deception, my concealment of my intentions. All of those things become important. And we got to work on those and understand how important those are because the fast draw didn't save the day like I always thought it would. Go on a range and train all this fast shooting, fast shooting, fast shooting. And then you get in a situation you're like, ah, I can't get my gun out. What do I do? So that's one of the big bubbles that I see pop. Another one is aftermath. The next biggest one would be what to do after a shooting. And I, I push students for follow through, which is play the scenario out and you have to get all the way to making the 911 call and getting yourself out of there safely if that's you know appropriate. And a lot of students, even in a class setting, just lock up. They freeze up. They don't know what to say. And, and you've got bystanders who may be screaming and may be hurt. People are scared. People are scared of you because people are oblivious in most rooms in public. And if you shoot someone, they didn't necessarily in the room realize that this was a bad person and you were a good person. They didn't see this thing happening. I talked about a situation where I had in Salt Lake City a couple months ago 
where, you know, I had an altercation brewing with a vagrant who followed me into a restaurant and this guy was extremely erratic in his behavior and he was pursuing me inside the restaurant. And I looked around the restaurant and not one staff or other patron in the restaurant even realized what was about to happen or what was going on. So if that guy would have suddenly got shot, all that the people would know is they turn around and there's a guy standing there with a gun and a guy on the ground. They don't understand what led up to the situation, even if they're in the same room as you. So aftermath and IDing yourself, helping other people, taking control of the room and reintegrating yourself back into that tribe, those things become extremely important. And it's hard to do when you haven't thought about it and you don't know what to say and you don't understand how to deal with panicking people or people who think you're a bad guy and other concealed carriers get injected in this situation, off-duty cops get injected into the situation. It just complicates everything a lot. And so you have to work through those. And when people realize like what really goes into after a shooting, it's almost, it's definitely like, Hey, the shooting was actually the easy part. Now this hard part of like, how do I get myself out of this situation and make sure I don't get shot by someone like a, another concealed carrier or a cop or, you know, and I also don't scare these people where they think I'm a bad guy and they start tackling me or they're all running, screaming a guy with a gun and then somebody's going to come shoot me. There's a lot of variables that need to be managed very quickly and very decisively in that aftermath period. And people have zero idea about that because the square range does not prepare you for that. I think that's a, a huge point. I spend about 40, 45 minutes on you know what I refer to as like immediate post-engagement actions, immediate post-engagement mindset, the threats that occur right then, the, the uh, off-duty law enforcement officer that's in there, the armed citizen who just can't wait to kill an active shooter and be on LiveLeak.com and be a, a hero that night. They dream about these things. There's dangerous people out there that carry guns that don't have the training. They will take a shot and they will potentially hurt you when they don't have enough information to really act on it at that point. So we have to be the ones that give them the correct information so they make the right decisions. And so even though I talk about it, you know, for 40, 45 minutes and, you know, I demonstrate some things and I, I explain some communication things we should be thinking about saying and doing, some actions we should be taking, they may do it. They may say it. They may have that mindset after the drills that we're doing on the range. But until you're out there experiencing it in a force-on-force -force class, I don't know if you truly get it. You know, I don't know if you truly get it. And one of the other big factors here with the force on force classes, you usually have, and, and most classes that I've been to and, and yours included, uh, which I haven't been to yours yet, definitely on the list. You'll have one or two, maybe three or four law enforcement officers in the class. Like what better value can you get to go do a force on, go do one of these scenarios that you've worried about. And if you carry a gun every day and you haven't thought about how I'm going to deal with a law enforcement officer when they arrive, what's going to happen in that immediate post engagement? How is this interaction going to occur? What are they expecting from me? What could be the best actions that I could take that could make me the safest whenever I run into that law enforcement officer that's responding? What could I do to make things safer for myself, for that officer, for everybody else around me? You have a captive audience of all these armed citizens full of questions, full of ideas with law enforcement officers who have been in those situations before, or at least very similar situations. And we can, with those officers right there, we can break down situations that have actually occurred that you're pulling from reality out there. And there's just so many things that you're going to get in that environment that you just can't possibly get out there on the square range. Yeah. And that's exactly how the class goes. My two assistant instructors are both police. And the interesting thing is I, I raised both of these kids, you know, in this business, like they both came to me before they were even old enough to have a concealed carry license or legally purchase a pistol. And now they're both active 
duty police officers, you know, so they've been with me a long time and I've watched these kids grow and be fine cops now. And I also get cops that show up in the class. I had a West Virginia officer in his last class and I think another officer from somewhere else plus my two AIs. So there's four cops in the class. There's always at least two, but usually more. And we do that exact same thing. And I always open the floor when we debrief to these guys and say, what do you think? What do you think? What would you do? What would you have done? And I inject them into the situation. So when I send, say, an off-duty cop in there who's a student in my class, I tell them, this is your realistic rep. You're out with your wife. You're plain clothes. You're off-duty. You don't have your badge on you. How would you deal with this situation? Be realistic in how you would deal with it. And you always see a different there's more command. There's more taking control. Usually the cops are much more in control of the situation afterwards and their words are put together a lot better because they've practiced it. They've done it. They've been giving people commands, you know, for several years now, some under stressful situations. So they know what to say and how to say it. Sometimes I got to back cops off because I've noticed that cops will tend to get too aggressive with bystanders. And that's a problem that, you know, I've worked on throughout the years repeatedly with officers is that tone it down a little bit. These aren't bad people. You're in a coffee shop. There was a robbery and these other people are just scared. You don't need to scream at them and cuss at them. So they get to work on stuff too. But the class is always made up of both. One of the things that I do with my class also is I'll send my AIs in as responding officers. They'll put their vest on, have their police very broadly displayed, and they will come into a situation after a shooting, you know, as a responding officer. And the students have to deal with that coming in. And I can think of at least once where, you know, there was an active shooter and it's probably five minutes into it. Say there was a patrol officer who was close by. The call came in, active shooter at this office building. He was close enough to be able to respond within five minutes. He got there. He's the first one. So he goes in, which we all know is what we suggest to do, especially from the Ron Borsch studies and stuff like that about the first guy going in can put an end to that quicker than just waiting for a team. So he goes in and turns the corner and concealed carrier shoots the cop because he sees a gun come around the corner and he's panicking and he's scared. And I've had that happen in my class. And that's why we do it like that. Cause I'm like, you know, in real life, your life just ended, right? Like you live through the event, but you just shot a cop and maybe killed, you know? So, or the opposite uh, happens. The, yeah, the, the cop shoots the officer you. doesn't know he comes in and he shoots you. What could you have done differently to keep that officer from shooting you? Or have been saying, yeah. you know, I refer to it as good guy talk. If I've got a gun out in a, a public environment when there's an officer responding or armed citizens in the area that may or may not understand that I'm a good guy here, I, I want to have good guy talk constantly flowing out of my mouth. Yeah, I call it uniting the tribe, right? Like reintegrate yourself into the tribe, unite the tribe. Like let them know yep, that you're one of them. Yeah. Uh, and you see both. I've seen both. I've seen the cops shoot someone because they didn't, you know, ID themselves or, or respond to a command properly. And I've had students shoot the cop coming in this class. This past weekend, I had two concealed carriers get into a fight because they didn't understand who they were in the in the situation. And so they immediately thought each other were bad guys because there was a shooting and then they both saw each other with guns out. Consequently, they, they had a gunfight of about 24 rounds and one guy got hit in the pinky finger. So we had to have a talk about use of sights and marksmanship under stress. And these are all, that's that's what Force on Force does. You know, it gives you that opportunity. And you don't need to be super tuned up. You know, you need to have like basic gun handling skills and safety and understand not to put your muzzle on people. But then you, you'll you come into a Force on Force class and you'll learn principles like support your partner, always provide security, get online or stay on lateral distance, you know, so you're not creating an issue with crossfire or muzzle, things like that. Understand your partner's position and support that position like 
those are the principles you'll start to learn in a team-based teamwork class like that. And it's not door kicking, room clearing, that kind of stuff. If you're looking for that, I'm not the guy and my classes aren't the one. There's classes out there like that, but I'm dealing with situations where two people are out, you both have guns, something goes bad. Now you got to work together and you got to get out of the situation without getting yourself in more trouble. And that's what you get from a force on force. I invite new people and new shooters to come to my classes. We use UTM rounds, which is a simulated ammunition. It's not supposed to penetrate you as long as your soft tissue is protected properly from the neck up primarily. I did get hit this time with UTM rounds from an AR-15 and and it was, it was quite painful. I have to say I lived through it, right? Obviously, but there's something to be learned by pain consequence. So there's a very useful component there as well. Catch a couple rounds in the right place and you're going to have a realistic fear of that weapon going into the next scenario that you're going to be trying real hard not to get shot, which is what we want. So new people and experienced people both should be in those classes. You just convinced everybody to go to a force on force class. Then you scared half of them away by saying UTM rounds hurt. <laughs> well, you know what? If that scares you from a class, then maybe you shouldn't be carrying a gun at all. Maybe you should just stay at home because bullets hurt a lot worse than UTM rounds. Is any advantage of UTM handguns and rifles over, you know, a lot of folks using airsoft these days. Yeah, there's a lot of advantages. First of all, UTM and SIM rounds are actual ammunition that cycle the weapon, you know, so they fire and they cause the, the round to eject and a new round to load and the, the semi-automatic weapon functions normally. It doesn't have quite the same recoil, but it does have a recoil impulse, which is important. A gas blowback airsoft gun does have a recoil impulse and cycles also, but it's very, very different. And that airsoft is not hitting you at, you know, 450-ish feet per second, right? So you've got a, a pretty sizable little round that's hitting you at about 450 feet per second. It stings a little bit and it's not terrible. Like the pistol rounds, most people just tell you got hit. I happen to get hit with an AR in a part of my body that had some really tight, thin clothing on. So it was like getting smacked right in the skin with it. So if you get caught like that, yeah, it's going to sting pretty bad. But in most cases, people spent the whole weekend, guys, girls, you know, wives that had never sparred or fought or been in any type of rough situation made it through the entire class without crying. So UTMs are certainly, you know, not that terrible, uh, but they do have a benefit over airsoft because they hit a little harder. They cycle the weapon a little harder. You can use realistic weapons. You put a conversion bolt in your existing AR, or you put a conversion kit in your existing Glock, or you can have a a dedicated, like I have dedicated Glocks that are just set up for UTMs that are highly visible in that manner. And, you know, you have to have extreme, extreme, extreme safety protocols in place. Like, and I mean extreme. Every single person that goes into a scenario in my class gets frisked and they get shook down. And I don't care. A lot of people will sterilize a, uh, an environment and shake people down once and then run all the way till lunch. I don't do that. You get shook down every single time you go into a scenario. So if between morning and lunch, you go into four scenarios, you got shook down four times. So you have to have extreme safety protocols in place because the weapons in a UTM situation are so similar in some cases using the exact same weapons that you just have a conversion barrel or a conversion bolt put in them. So you have to have that safety protocol put in place and with extreme, you know, there, there can be no tolerance at all, none for any types of slips or mistakes in your safety at all. But outside of that, the benefits are huge to have UTM over airsoft. Now, if all you can do is airsoft, I'm not one of these people that all oh, airsoft is garbage and you shouldn't do it. Like I started out with airsoft years ago. 
and my first force on force classes were done in a field with airsoft gas blowback guns. And I think I had great classes and people, they, they learned a ton. And then those same people, if they come to UTM, would get the same lessons, but with a little more realism and, and a little more pain consequence and things like that. So I think there is a benefit. I think there's many benefits, rather. People should definitely give it a try if you get a chance to go to a class that's, you know, UTM or sim, sim round based to definitely do it because you'll see the difference. Yeah, I was asked that question very recently and I gave a very similar answer losing a little bit psychologically and you're losing a lot of the realism at the gun but as far as the training the decision making the the actions that you take the tactics you use and all that stuff you know that that gun doesn't have a, a big effect on that when it gets down to the, the skill with the gun it's it's significantly different the UTM is is much closer to reality in in every way from the trigger field to the recoil to, to everything else than airsoft Varg what are we uh, missing that you need to throw in here I think we've covered a lot for, you know, an introduction into, you know, what, what exactly is force on force and can you learn there and who should go there and what type of weapons or ammunition do you use in force on force? Yeah, I think we've covered a lot in this episode here. So it's going to give people a lot to think about, I think, as it is. If you are at the level in your training and care about self-defense and, and carrying a gun and learning to where you're downloading and listening to this podcast, it is time for you to take a force on force class. That should be one of your goals in 2021 to get into one of Varg's classes or somebody else who's a doing a good job, reputable trainer out there. I'd like for you to take Varg's class and you might see me in there with you next year too. Maybe we can put something together like that. of one that we're going to do. That'd be cool that uh, I'm a student along with other podcast listeners work that out, but that should be on your list next year. It should be a priority for you in my opinion. Mark, give you the final thoughts and I'll, I'll sign us off. Yeah. So I'll say this, you know, it's still a tense time in the country and people are uncertain about, you know, where we're going and how society is going to be, but just stay focused and try to not focus on negative things all the time. Focus on positive things. Do, you know, do a fair amount of training and a fair amount of thinking about what you should be doing, but also do a fair amount of living and try to enjoy your family and enjoy people who you care about because those people might not be around next week. And that's going to be more important than worrying about if you should put your right foot forward or your left foot forward under cover and during a firing drill. So think about those things and get into a force on force class because you're going to learn what you need to know going forward to learn from that point on more so than you did before that class. Eeyore, did you just tell everybody to focus on the positives and think positive? You're going to take that I on did. your own advice? Probably that, you know, you know, I struggle with that. So I'm trying to help people out, but you know, don't do what I do. Do what I say. Right. <laughs> All right. Guys, as always, thank you for listening and we'll see you next time for the MagLife podcast. Until then, MagLife out.